Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful Saturday here in uh, Cody, Wyoming. My son, Garrett, and uh, his wife, our daughter-in-law, Mary Jane, are in town. So it's a little bit of a family reunion. Having a great time. Well, we're looking forward to having a great time today as well. We're going to get in our Wayback Machine and do something we don't do on the show here very often. We're going to do a watch along from WCW Monday Nitro, June 10th, 1996. This, of course, is when Kevin Nash shows up on WCW programming. We've met Scott Hall at the end of May, and here comes Kevin Nash. And this show is uh, pretty significant because uh, the NWO is here. And we're looking forward to covering this. Hopefully you are too. We want you to go ahead and pull up the WWE network on your end. The way to do that, of course, is go to the vault, then go down to Monday nitro. It's nitro number 39 from June 10th, 1996. And, uh, your main event is going to be Rick Flair and Arn Anderson taking on sting and Lex Luger. Booker T is going to wrestle Scott Steiner. Uh, but of course that's all sort of in the background. What everyone's going to be talking about is Kevin Nash. Eric, when I told you we were going to be watching this show, uh, I guess I should ask, is this the first time you've seen it since it happened? I actually haven't. I didn't want to watch it in advance, which is what I normally do if you and I are going to break down a pay-per-view or or Nitro, and I know in advance what we're going to be talking about, so I can remember as much detail as possible. I go back, and I watch them. And this one, when I knew we were going to be covering this, I, I wanted to watch it for the first time, you know, on this podcast since I did it. I haven't gone back and looked at it. I remember the show. It was obviously a big, big pivot point, you know, for Nitro and and for what was going to soon be the NWO angle. But there was so much going on, and I was so excited about breaking down this show and reliving it, you know, since the first time since 1996. So looking forward to this one. So this should be fun. Fire up your WWE network. We're going to give you uh, a little bit of a countdown. Okay. So without any further ado, we're going to give you a little bit of a countdown. And when we tell you to press play, press play, and you'll be in sync with us. Eric, are you ready? I am ready. Fire away. Okay. We're going to go three, two, one, play three, two, one play. I got to tell you, I love this old open. I think so many of our listeners who enjoy this show, this is what they grew up on. I know we've talked about it briefly before. When and where was this uh, put together? That was put together down in Orlando, Florida. Craig Leathers, I believe, uh, and his team were the ones that put it together. And I believe most of the po- post-production was down, down at the Disney MGM Studios. That was the back lot. A lot of those buildings that you saw were uh, part of the back lot at the Disney MGM, Disney MGM Studios. How about the, uh, the pyro that comes out of the corners, um, the corner posts, who puts that together? Oh, David Crockett would have arranged for that. I'm not sure who the individual was that handled the pyro, uh, Sure, but that would have been David, David Crockett's crew. 
So like when we see the fire behind the flames going behind the names here on the little lower third or the Chiron or whatever you guys called it, is that also a, a Craig Leathers look? Yeah, the graphics again were all built. Uh, no, I, I believe the graphics we built at the TNT Studios, uh, we built those in house. Uh, but the the open was built down at the Disney MGM Studios. But yeah, that would have been Craig Leathers and his team. These days, we hear stories about how hands on Vince McMahon is with everything, especially when it comes to the broadcasters. We know he's in their ear and he's yelling, but apparently, he's even dictating what people are wearing. Um, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Nobody ever told Tony Schiavone what to wear. He wouldn't have dressed like an idiot. Um, <laughs> You're hard on Tony. I know you do, you you two love each other, but you come off as being very hard on Tony. Oh, I'm just messing around. But how about this double-breasted suit? Is that uh, Annette Yothers or is that Lois Schiavone? No, that's got to be Lois. Although, you know, I don't know how much uh, fashion influence Annette would have had over Tony. She, she didn't come off to me as somebody who was, you know, very fashion forward, so to speak. How many rounds? Larry, uh, Larry, on the other hand is looking dapper, especially for 96. I mean, he's rolling like a wheel. I guess we should mention this show that we're watching is happening, uh, from Wheeling, West Virginia. You guys drew 3,500 fans for $41,000. Boy, those numbers are going to change when we see more of this. And here we go. Here's a highlight from last week. And I'm going to play the audio here for the fans at home tells me when to do it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Huh? Okay. Okay, tough guy. I got a little, no. I got a big surprise for you next week. And fans. So there you go. We see the promise of a big surprise next week. Uh, you guys are on the podium. When I say you guys, of course, it's Scott Hall. Uh, he's sort of jaw jacking with Sting, and you're in the middle. And this is uh, setting quite the stage. At this point, uh, what's sort of the vibe that you have? I mean, nobody knows what the NWO is going to become, but how excited are you? We've talked about, you know, when, when, uh, the moment happened when Lex Luger, uh, or I'm sorry, when Hulk Hogan was finally revealed, you, you sort of joked that backstage watching it, you knew you had a hit and you joked, you had a Woody about how well it had come off at this point, you've revealed Scott Hall. And now, you know, this is going to start to take shape with Kevin Nash. What's Eric Bischoff feeling about this angle at this point? Pretty damn excited and fairly confident. Um, th there's something about the mystery of who the third man was going to be. And, I, and I'm sure it had been done or a variation of, of that kind of an angle or storyline has been done in the past. But to me, it felt really, really fresh. It hadn't been done in WCW in, in recent history, at least not done well, because I couldn't remember it. Uh, but I, I kind of sensed that we had something that was pretty good. I, and again, like you said, no idea at all of what it was going to become. I had no idea at this particular junction um, of this idea with Scott Hall coming out first. And now this week, Kevin Nash is going to be coming out. Um, had no idea that Hulk Hogan would agree to be the third man. At this point, in my mind, at least creatively, that third man was going to be Sting. So there, 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 just... 
you know, and again, looking back at this and knowing what was going on and what was eventually going to come out of all of this, it's so much fun to watch. Look how young Booker T looks there. I guess we all looked quite a bit younger back then. It's amazing to go back and watch a match like this or a show like this, because I think now everybody remembers that Booker T and Scott Steiner were part of very successful tag teams. Of course, the Steiner brothers were an institution for WCW and Harlem heat had been, you know, around for a couple of years and they're going to continue their run on top for a couple more before both of these guys sort of go their own way as single stars. But here they're both very much tag team stars and we're way before big Papa pump. And these guys would continue their run in WCW all the way to the very end. And I think when I think of these guys in a match, I think about the last nitro for the world title where Booker T would get the win. And when WCW closes down, Booker T is champ, but here it is happening in June of 96. Um, the match here to put together two tag guys in a singles match. Is this, is this Kevin Nash or not Kevin Nash? Is this Kevin Sullivan doing the booking primarily for matchmaking on nitro in 96 or is that someone else? Well, it was, it was Kevin that, you know, oversaw the, pretty much the creative team. You know, I, I was going to call it a committee. It really wasn't a committee necessarily, but there was a team of people, including Terry Taylor and, you know, different people at different points in time. You know, I'm pretty sure Greg Gagne might've still been here by now. I'm not sure. Uh, but there would have been several people on that team. And Kevin Sullivan is the guy that was overseeing the team. I did have some input at this point. Uh, I was starting to get more and more comfortable with the creative process. So I was also in there, but it was really Kevin that was in charge. Now, in terms of, you know, the tag team thing, you know, I often got criticized for not putting a lot of emphasis on tag teams. And a lot of that goes back to 94 and 95 during the cost cutting right. era of, of my the beginning of my tenure as as an executive in WCW and if you think about it from a from a purely business point you know if you look at a tag team match let's just say it's going to take 12 14 16 18 minutes on a television show well instead of having two pieces of talent in that period of time you now have four and oh by the way if you're going to have a really viable tag team division you've got to have enough tag teams to mix and match that those teams in a way that you can keep the storylines fresh. And that just, it's like doubling the amount of talent that you have to have under contract in order to keep a viable tag team division going. So my goal was to eliminate, uh, if not, well, not eliminate, reduce the number of tag teams back in 94, 95, and certainly even here in 96, because we weren't quite really making the money that we were about to make. Uh, so there was an emphasis to put more emphasis on singles matches and less on tag team matches. This match is going to go nearly six minutes. Um, talk to me about, you know, and w, WWE has be, become a little, uh, I don't know, lax on what they used to say. Oh, fans can't see this, uh, but they can see this now with the network. I do feel like they're pulling back the curtain more than ever before. And a lot of fans at this point have seen that. In the gorilla position or just outside of it, there's often a dry race board and this is still pretty old school, but WWE still does it. They'll put up there. Hey, here's what's happening in each match. And it's like a full rundown. Was there such a posting backstage here where it's like, Hey, here's all the guys on the card tonight. 
And, you know, sometimes the position of the way they're listed on the board tells you who's winning or who's not, or sometimes they'll underline a name out maybe in the columns on the right, they'll put a parentheses and that's the ref and the agent. Did something like that exist in this era of nitro? Yeah, we, we had a big, uh, whiteboard and we had basically the run of show, uh, in, in television terms, that means, you know, a, a a short version of the format. So at any given moment, if you were the fifth match on the card, you could, while you were warming up, or if you were working out the final details of your match with your, your partner, your agent or whatever, uh, at any given time, you could run over to that board that was right outside a gorilla position. And you could see exactly where we were at in the show in real time, in case you weren't able to sit and watch it on a monitor, which was usually the case. When guys had matches, you know, they were working out their finishes or any last minute details right up until probably five or 10 minutes before their match. And then you go out, you, you warm up, you get ready for what you're about to do. But yeah, that board was there. So you could, anybody that was on the show could look up at any time and see exactly where we were in the show without having to watch it on the monitor or watch it through the curtain. What information would have been on that whiteboard? Would it tell them how long they had? Like in this oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you you were basically looking at an abbreviated version of the format. So it would tell you, you know, where, where you were on the on the show, what segments you were in. It would tell you how long your segment was. It would, notify, it would note uh, who the agent was for that particular match. It would tell you the time allotted to that particular segment or match. If there was an interview or a promo or some kind of a hot angle, either before or after that would have been identified as well. So like I said, it was a reader's digest version of the, of the television format. This is going to be our finish here. It was a good match. A very good match, you know, especially for six minutes, you know, it's a good way to open. Of course, later nitro is going to gain a reputation for opening with luchadors. We're opening with the heaviest of heavyweights here with Scott Steiner and Booker T, but quite a match. What do you think of Scott Steiner's look here? Well, it was, <laughs> it was current back in the nineties, <laughs> almost current. You know, that, that, that was a hell of a mullet that he had. Uh, but physically he looks great. And I mean, look how in this match, we didn't really do a lot of play by play in this match, but Scott Steiner might've been maybe not at his peak, but damn close to it right here. Oh, I mean, yeah. He was crisp. He was fast. He was agile as a cat and, and strong as an ox. Pet boys in the sponsored element here, the power pin of the week. And I know a lot of fans maybe don't put two and two together, but you know, a lot of, a lot of times, you know, ad agencies are looking for, uh, you know, what is sponsorable? Is there a segment of the show that is sponsorable? Oh my gosh. Look at that early Kevin green, Mongo McMichael, as we get a tease for later. Um, what would happen typically, you know, are your, is your sales team going out and just making calls and then they run into somebody like a pet boys and they say, you know what? They don't just want to be, you know, run a spot inside the show. They want to be inside the show somewhere. Could we come up with a sponsored element? Or in this case, is this something where, you know, you guys say, all right, well, we've got this power. We got this pin of the week thing we're thinking about. Maybe we could find somebody to buy that. It's sort of chicken in the egg. Are you guys formatting the show where it has elements of the show that could be sponsored or do you go have the conversation first and then, Hey, let's figure out how to make it fit. 
Pet Boys came to us through uh, Turner Ad Sales out of New York, and the majority of the advertising and sponsorships that we had did, the exception, of course, being Slim Jim, um, eventually EA Sports, and there were a couple others that that, that were developed in-house. Those were very rare, though. In this case, Pep Boys, as I said, came to us through Ad Sales in New York. Ad Sales in New York knew what our format was. They knew what our sponsorable events were for the most part. And if there was something special, something unique that uh, a potential client or advertiser wanted us to create, for example, uh, if you remember, you may not remember, you were too young, but um, Coca-Cola came out with a soft drink called Surge. Yeah. It was their their version of Mountain Dew. Well, Nitro was the first real national ad buy that Surge, or that Coca-Cola product, ever had. And that was a case where Coca-Cola actually came to me uh, directly through Brad Siegel because we had a good relationship with the, the folks over at Coke. And we developed a sponsorship for Surge in-house. And I was working directly with the team over at Coca-Cola to do that. But for the most part... Um, all that stuff came through us through ad sales and we just accommodated. So we see uh, Deborah McMichael here doing a promo with me and Gene. We'll talk about me and Gene in a minute, but I do want to ask how does Deborah McMichael get on camera? How does that come to be? You know, it's just, it's, and I'm sure it's not the first time and it won't be the last in a wrestling business, but probably a little bit like, uh, Brock's wife did Sable, you know, you're there. You you got a certain look. You've got a certain charisma. There's a certain idea that just kind of makes sense in the moment, given someone's relationship with another piece of talent. Obviously, in this case, Deborah's relationship with Steve McMichael. You know, she she had that kind of Southern Belle beauty queen, which she was, by the way. All of those things. Uh, she had that kind of aura about her, and she had a big personality. So I think it was just a matter of time before somebody sitting around coming up with ideas said, "Hey." Why don't we use Deborah in this particular spot? She's funny. She, you know, she's good on camera. She's got a unique uh, charisma personality. And sure, let's give it a try. And then before you know it, she's a, a weekly figure. Here we go. Uh, this is this is peak early WCW in '96. Jim Powers out next. Uh, the former tag partner, I guess, with uh, Paul Roma here, there, and next up is going to be one of our our favorites here on the show, Mister Diamond Dallas Page. But yet he was not; uh, it was not quite yet the uh, the cool version of DDP. Oh He's- God, that is putting it mildly. Look at this; just, I mean, uh, my eyes are my, my eyes ache right now. We're chewing gum. We're smoking a cigar. We've got a uh, gold chain on. We've got sunglasses. We've got tape all over our fingers. We've also got a battle bowl ring. Uh, we've got uh, different colored vest and brightly colored trunks. And it's like fluorescent green and fluorescent purple. This is just hideous. This is just, just screams state fair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really does look like, you know, indie wrestler number 42. Oh, it's horrible. Who would have, um, go ahead. I was going to say Jim powers has got a good look. I mean, this guy looks like a classic, you know, late eighties, early mid nineties, you know, type of, a uh, of wrestler, but another guy that, you know, great look, but just never really made it. Talk to me about, 
you know, the, uh, you know, what we've, we've, we've seen over the years, you know, they used to have, um, little documentaries even here and there for the WWE on the way the costumes were handled for WWE. So you've got, you know, seamstresses who have been with the company for decades. Did WCW have something like that where guys would have had help with their costumes or does, does DDP just, you know, uh, go to some yard sale and find some stuff and put it together. <laughs> One would assume that he went to a yard sale and, and found it. But, you know, I think most, there were several, you know, women and, and, and there were several places where people in WCW could get their gear from, whether it be boots or tights or whatever, they weren't directly, um, they weren't employed by WCW. So, the talent would often have to have their, their stuff made. Uh, that was their expense and on their dime. And it was also one of the reasons why there wasn't a lot of really great consistency because we weren't doing it internally. We weren't watching it as closely as we should have watched. And, you know, to, ma- to maximize a lot of things. But, you know, another one of those things, it, it, it was indicative of the kind of growing pains that we were in at this point. Is there anybody in the back who's watching the matches and, and, and from with more of a critical eye, um, like I I'm, I'm friends with, uh, an older wrestler who gets annoyed when he sees people duck the clothesline, but like there's certain moves that happen on raw or SmackDown that happen 48 times a show, every show. And nobody ever says you guys got to fucking stop with that one move. Cause nobody ever hits it. And if anybody ever throws it, the audience automatically knows well they're not hitting it. Does, does something like that exist? Is that a, a Greg Gagne thing or a Terry Taylor thing? Or is that really not on anybody's radar as far as putting the matches? No, 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 no. It, it was on everybody's radar. And that was something that was a constant, even when, you know, when I first joined WCW as an announcer. You know, the agents primarily um, were the ones that would watch a particular match and then critique it when the talent came back, tell them what they did right, what they did wrong. But it was usually those agents and particularly the older ones and agents tend to be more seasoned, more experienced, you know, ex performers, uh, that have that knowledge. And usually the older they are, the more they kind of lament the, the formula that so many people use, you know, the ducking under a clothesline being one of them, but there was always, you know, each agent had their own particular, um, bitches about what they liked and what they didn't like, depending on their style and their era. But yeah, there was a lot of that going on back then. Did it ever get so out of hand that you guys had to like put something on that whiteboard? Like no more missed goddamn clotheslines on your line. Well, not only that, yes. To answer your question. Yes. That happened often. And it was a, that was a source of a lot of frustration backstage because, you know, guys wouldn't watch the match before them. That's another thing that we always used to try to, you know, convey to the talent is watch what the fuck is going on right before your match. Because a lot of these guys, you know, their matches weren't laid out and scripted beat by beat by beat. So you could look at a piece of paper and say, okay, these guys are going to throw, you know, this move, this move. And they're, and they're, oh, okay, they're using this finish, so we better change ours up. You know, that's what should have been going on. The agents should have been communicating, making sure that, you know, talents weren't using similar finishes, particularly, you know, back to back or too close together on the format. Uh, but, but that, you know, we didn't execute that well on that particular part of things. So there was a constant frustration 
when guys would go out and basically use some of the same sequences that that, that had been used in the match right before them. Uh, that happened often, and that was really just a lack of communication. So there you go. There was the uh, diamond cutter finish. Let's let everybody hear Arn Anderson talking here. Benoit was strained at best, proven by the actions of the Taskmaster at Slamboree. Is he holding him or what? Oh! But with the loss came a display of mistrust. Where were you when Flair lost the belt? You're supposed to be the enforcer. Benoit's actions may have confirmed the Taskmaster's suspicions of his loyalty to the Horseman. Or does he have a more important concern? This Hulkamania is not dead. By no means. He will come back and he'll be looking for some people including the giant, including you, including me. Is this paranoia or does the taskmaster see something else festering deep within the horseman? I know serpents better than anybody in this planet. And the way you get rid of a serpent is you crush the egg. Crushing anything isn't easy when it involves a horseman, but the Taskmaster has already proven himself to Ric Flair and Arn Anderson by flushing out a man undeserving of the title. I respect you, Booker Man. I do have honor for two people. That's Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, because they stood beside me, Jimmy Hart, when I slapped that Brian Pillman all around the ring and got him out of here. Now I'm going to do them a favor. When it's over and said and done, we will all know exactly where we stand. Deal? Deal's a deal. On June 16th, Chris Benoit may have found himself in a deal without the aid of his comrades in a match where falls count anywhere. So there you go. We're teasing the Chris Benoit, Kevin Sullivan match, and we're promised uh, Conan here up next. Let's talk a little bit about what we've seen here. There's, there's a lot to digest in that. Um, first of all, how big of a fan of, of the Dungeon of Doom were you? Not at all. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I hated it, but as I've said, I've said this before, and this is a perfect example of it. You know, one of the things that I learned from Ted Turner, and I, I mean, it wasn't like he sat me down and mentored me, but I, I heard him say this, uh, in, in a meeting once that, you know, and he was talking about it with respect to how he programmed TBS and how he programmed TNT and the rest of the networks. And somebody asked a question, you know, about the type of programming that both networks or all the networks were, you know, pursuing. And Ted said, look, we, uh, some of the stuff that we've got on the network is not for me. I don't watch it. I don't like it. It's not my cup of tea. But I'm not programming these networks for myself. I'm programming them for the broader audience. So even though there were things like the Dungeon of Doom and gimmick matches, which you've talked about ad nauseum here. Oh, look at Conan. This was like a little bit of the residual Max Moon thing, I think, going on. Um, you know, even though there's a lot of things like gimmick matches and hardcore matches and 
the Dungeon of Doom, you know, was an example of something that I actually hated, but realized that there were other people that may have liked it. Other people like gimmick matches. Other people like a lot of things I don't necessarily like as a fan. So I recognized that I couldn't program WCW so that all of the matches were to suit my taste. Because not everybody has my taste and you have to appeal to a broader audience. I've seen a promo here from Conan backstage. This, uh, this set is reminiscent of an old WWF set where they had, you know, fake lockers and a payphone and things like that. Who made this set for you guys, this backstage locker room set? Uh, whoever built the building. <laughs> oh, that's not, that's not local there. That's, uh, that's something you guys carted around had to be. No. Rarely did we cart backstage sets around unless it was something that was really unique. Um, like the, you know, the Jay Leno set, for example, that we used for storyline for a while. Uh, we just grabbed whatever was in the building. We got Ming coming out next here. Let's talk about something we saw there, uh, in that package with, uh, Chris Benoit. One of the things they kept referring to was the fact that, uh, Kevin Sullivan ran Brian Pillman out of here. Now. We've talked about Brian Pillman at length here on the show, but I just want to remind everybody, Brian Pillman, WCW believed, according to the observer, they had wrapped up. They had agreed in theory to a money figure on June 1st. As a reminder, the show we're watching is on uh, June the 10th. So nine days prior to this, there is an agreement in principle for a three-year deal. But there are two things in the contract that become sticking points. One is this 90 day cycle that's built in, meaning WCW could terminate him, uh, any, time they wanted based on those quarterly increments. And the other is that Pillman wouldn't be flown first class for all of his scheduled appearances. And of course that was something that Pillman was looking for. Uh, the reason this 90 day thing is critical is because Pillman was in a bad Humvee accident on April 15th and he's still not healed. So there is a question. Hey, now that he's got part of his hip and his ankle, is this guy going to be what he was before? And is he even going to be able to compete at all? And allegedly, according to the observer, you were a little hesitant to issue a million dollar contract over three years or four years or whatever the length was to a guy who might not be able to perform. So you had to have some sort of 90 day cycle in there. And of course, Uh, This is happening at a time where the WWF has seen a lot of their talent jump ship, whether it's Kevin Nash or it's Scott Hall or it's Hulk Hogan or it's Randy Savage. So Vince McMahon very quickly makes a deal with Brian Pillman, who WCW thinks they have a deal with. So just three days prior to this, the Friday before on June 7th, Pillman actually puts pen to paper for a three-year deal with the WWF. So now that WCW knows that the very next nitro, we're going to make sure we let everybody know that Kevin Sullivan ran his ass out of town on a rail. What do I have wrong there? I don't, yeah, it's well, you covered a lot of ground. And I think as is often the case when we're, you know, when we're going back and reading the reports from whatever newsletter we're getting our information from, from that time, you know, there's a, as I've said before, there's often kernels of truth. Sometimes in, in this case, I think most of what you laid out there 
was probably true. The inference that the 90-day clause was specific to Brian because of his injury is not really fair or accurate. You know, the the 90-day cycle clause was kind of a leftover. It was one of those things that Bill Watts um, introduced into the WCW contracts that, quite frankly, Turner executives on the legal side really, really liked because it pretty much meant that you had 90-day contracts and you could cycle people in and out at will. And the idea was that it was just a, 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 a way to help manage, for the most part, an unmanageable situation with the guaranteed contracts when you had people who would manip- try to manip- manipulate you know, the terms of the deals and fake injuries or, you know, have drug test issues and all those types of things. The 90 day cycle out clause was a very, very simple way to address a myriad of issues. Um, And it was something that it took me quite a while to make go away because like I said, Turner Legal loved it. And Turner Legal didn't report to me. I didn't have a lot of influence over them. I could explain to them sometimes why some of their policies or the ways they wanted to write contracts or whatever uh, either did or didn't work for me, and I would try to explain why. Um, But for the most part, that was something that uh, Bill Watts introduced, and I had a hell of a hard time getting rid of. Ming here, going up top against Sting. They're only going to go three minutes and nine seconds here. By the way, did you notice how fast Ming was earlier when he with those flurry of punches that he had uh, on Sting when Sting was up against the ropes? It was really amazing to watch a guy as big as Ming and as tough as Ming throw hands that fast. Now, granted, they're you know they're working punches, but it's still a lot of speed on those hands. And what a great guy he is! You know, I ran into him at Starcast uh, when I was there. And we got to hang out for about, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour. We ate together and had some, what a sweet, sweet guy for his, you know, for the reputation he, he has and deservedly so he's one of the nicest, kindest, gentlest people you'll ever meet outside of the ring. If you don't piss him off. <laughs> yeah. I'm just glad, you know, he ate his dinner and not other patrons faces off while you guys were together, you know, but you know, and he has that reputation and but I, I, I think if if Ming's hot at you, you probably have worked really hard to get his attention. He's not a guy that has a short fuse, thank goodness, or didn't back then. But I think he was one of those guys that when you finally you know pulled that trigger, he he did go off. But um, to me, he's just always been a very patient, quiet, gentle type of guy. Here we are. We've got another segment with Main Gene. And Deborah McMichael, we're only like 31 minutes into the show and you take out the commercials and it's Deborah McMichael's second time on camera. And, uh, me and Gene talking to one of the all time greats here, Bobby, the brain, Heenan. let's hear what Bobby's got to say now, tonight. now I have to talk to them tonight. Now all week long and all night long, all week, you've been talking to flair. Now you hey, wait, I have wait, not wait. been talking all night. Now she wants to talk to You want to insult people again, right? Don't start that. Don't get involved in this. You want to talk to Flair? Follow me, toots. All right, Deborah, we're going to see if uh, Ric Flair will perhaps talk to you. This is dressing room, locker room. Uh, Here they are, the gals. I see if I can get some kind of a shot here. Just a minute. Okay. Hey, she just about took took the. Wait, wait, Wait a minute. Hey, what is going on? What are you doing? What have you done, Claire? 
What have you done? Oh, no! My goodness sakes! What the? What's going on here? Anderson! Claire! Please! Ladies and gentlemen, get some help in here! Tina! Stop this! What in the world is going on? The figure four! Tony! Larry! Goodness sakes! I tell you, Gene, that's... So Flair's putting a figure four on the renegade randomly trying to come to rescue Deborah McMichael, who, when she finally got into Flair's dressing room, uh, Bobby slammed the door and we heard Deborah scream. I've got to assume that Flair showed her the balloon trick. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I do want to mention something else that, uh, we sort of glossed what's over. A, what's the balloon trick? Oh, okay. So back in the day, um, allegedly, I never saw it, but I've heard multiple people say that Flair would be holding court in a bar and then he would disappear and he would go upstairs. Oh my gosh, look at this. And he would grab a, uh, a robe and he would take off all of his clothes and put on the robe. And then he would have a balloon with a string. I don't know if he had like a box of gimmicks in his bag or what, but. He would tie a balloon to uh part of himself and he would hide it under the robe and then he would go make the big reveal, open the robe, and the balloon would float up, but it wouldn't get too far because it's tied to something. Wow. Yeah, that would cause a reaction, would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Flair has a story about Kevin Sullivan, the way he had a, a unique way of uh Showing off birthday candles. So I don't even I don't even want to know, bro. I don't even it's probably not fit even for this podcast. It's not. It's more of a it's more of a Tony Shivani podcast conversation. All right. Uh, but you save that for Tony. Dave Taylor and Jeeves. Uh what can you tell everybody about Jeeves? I don't know. Why did we do that? Conrad, <laughs> why did we do that? It was so ridiculous. Yeah, it was. It was horrible. Now, I know, and I can't remember G's real name. Um, maybe I mean, it'll come to me before the end of this was, podcast. I don't know. Was it Gary Hedrick? Yes. Oh, he was Wildcat Willie. Yeah, so Gary, <laughs> Gary was Wildcat Willie and Jeeves. Yeah, but- he was doing double duty. He was Wildcat Willie before the show, during the dark matches and so forth, and then... Uh, then he'd become, that's it. Yeah. We were getting two furs out of them. Two for the price of one. So, uh, how did you find Gary and, and, and talk us through, I know we've talked about it once before, but explain the, the rationale behind a wildcat Willie. Well, actually that was Bob do, uh, Bob do was the executive vice president. When I was first made executive producer, uh, I didn't report directly to Bob. I reported to Bill Shaw and Bob oversaw Live events. Um, he, Bob Bob do oversaw everything but television production when I was first hired, and Bob, you know, Bob had an extensive uh, background in arena management. He oversaw the Omni for Turner Broadcasting, which is why he ended up as the executive vice president of WCW. Obviously, the the logic there, so to speak, was that well, since this guy manages arenas and WCW wrestles wrestles in arenas. He should be the boss. <laughs> that, that's how that came about. 
but Bob did have a lot of great relationships and knowledge of the arena industry. And I think just from going to the different events and being exposed to things the way Bob was, he, he saw other sports teams have mascots and figured, why shouldn't WCW have a mascot? And there's no, I mean, it's not a bad idea, really. Um, I think it could have been executed a little differently, maybe would have been a little better and, and less childish, but it worked for the most part. I don't think there was anything wrong with the idea. It was not a lot different than the logic behind the Nitro Girls. You know, the Nitro Girls came about because sports team use, sports teams typically, NBA, NFL, typically use, you know, cheerleaders or dancers to kind of entertain the audience during slow moments, whether it be commercial breaks or if there's a injured player on the field or whatever and there's no action that's when they'll send out the cheerleaders to kind of keep everybody's attention and i think you know the nitro girls were the same thing and, and so was wildcat willie aka jeeves aka jeeves uh i guess we should tell everybody if you're not watching with us you should be but jim duggan is going to uh, get a win here over dave taylor uh they only get two and a half minutes um one of the things we, we sort of gloss over was Conan. Uh, we were covering something else when, when Conan was out there and they not only did an interview backstage with Conan, but then they did like a music video. And I think a lot of our listeners probably remember Conan more from his NWO days where he was K dog and yo, 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 let me speak on this and more of a, uh, a, a street hip hop type persona, but we saw a much more colorful Conan. And that was the Conan that became. You know, and I've heard a lot of people make this comparison. He was sort of like, you know, Mexico's answer to Hulk Hogan, you know, in the, in the early nineties and he achieved tremendous success down there. Um, you know, I've read that, you know, he was driving a Ferrari when he was, you know, 20 something years old, all from, you know, his, his Conan persona in Mexico where he did, um, you know, like, like their version of soap operas. And I mean, he was a, a big star down there. How big of a coup was it for WCW to land Conan? With all due respect to Conan, who I've, you know, closer to him now than I've ever been. Um, it wasn't and not, not taking anything away from Conan, but the connection to the Hispanic audience, we really didn't start making progress till later on in 96 and 97. It wasn't a focus for WCW in 92, 93, 94, 95. So there wasn't a a need, so to speak. And we didn't feel that, although we were well aware of Conan's success in Mexico, we didn't feel as though it was somehow going to translate here. We felt like we had to really introduce Conan to the domestic audience because as big as he was in Mexico, uh, probably 95% of the wrestling audience didn't know who he was. I mean, I'm talking about the average wrestling fan. I'm not talking about the hardcore dirt sheet reading, you know, internet chat room living fan. I'm talking about the the passive viewer, which is probably 80 or 90 percent of the audience didn't know who he was. So uh, I, I don't uh, uh, again, not taking anything away from Conan, but I don't, there was no sense of, wow, this is a really big deal. Well, what is a big deal is we just saw a promo promoting uh, Ray Mysterio Jr., versus by the way, that's totally a fake set. Ray Mysterio Jr. Uh, versus Dean Malenko at the great American bash. And we got triple a footage 
that's kind of fun to see on a Monday Nitro. What was the nature of your relationship with AAA here? It was off and on, uh, you know, with Conan, uh, because I think Conan may have been primarily with, with Triple H at the time. I had a couple meetings with Antonio Pena. With Antonio Pena and I got along very well. Antonio was really interested in expanding the relationship between WCW and, and AAA. So was I, as I stated just a few moments ago. And you're right, that probably – I don't know if that's a fake set. See the – the uh, the, the vent in the upper left. See we would not have done though, that. See the seam between the lockers. Like look, we'll look right above Bubba's head. Yeah, well, it's that, up against the wall. Yeah, there's a crack though. Like that's two pieces pushed together. Yeah, but we wouldn't have. I mean, there's too much detail. WCW wouldn't have attached a fire extinguisher to the wall. We just wouldn't have done that. That vent in the upper left would have been too hard to fake and fabricate. So I, I, I know you feel like this is a fake set, but I don't think it is. I'm going to find other footage. Uh, All right. Find other footage. It's fun to me that you've got, uh, the former earthquake and the former big boss man in a hair feud now. And we just saw clips of that. And I I know you conveniently wanted to gloss over that. It was like, (laughs) it was like a tale of two WCWs right there. My friend, you know, Dean Malenko, Ray Mysterio. Oh, look, earth, not earthquake and not boss man. And they're fighting over who gets to cut off the other person's hair. No, but we, you know, and I'm not defending or, or, or deflecting here, but I've said to you before, you know, this, and this is why this period here, you know, in 96 was so exciting, especially as we, we went on further into the year and we actually you know, saw what the NWO, you know, was going to become and had the success from that, that angle of the initial success. This was the period of time where I was really, me personally, individually, was transitioning and again, in my mind, out of the late 80s, early 90s creative, which is basically, you know, a cheap WWF ripoff uh, for the most part, and transitioning into more reality-based kind of adult themed stories uh, and not the kitty type characters and the kitty stories that we were emulating in the WWF. But this is the period of time here where, where it was really becoming clear to me how WCW nitro in particular really needed to change the tone of their show. And there was a lot of residual silly shit, you know, eighties silly shit as I'll refer to it. It worked at the time and it was very successful at the time for the WWF. And, and WCW did a piss poor job of trying to copy that formula all the way up until right about now, uh, myself included, by the way. But this is where we were really beginning to see the transition. There's some just Miami Vice looking fans. Holy cow. So we've got the clock running in the bottom right hand corner with a stick of dynamite that's counting down 26, 25, 24. What, what, what's the countdown for? Do you remember? I don't remember, but uh, maybe it's the top of the hour. That is probably it. And I think back then we were formatting the show, so it almost felt like two shows. So we'd have an additional, there we go, we'd have an additional open at the top of the hour for people who were just joining us. So it felt like a, a, a fresh show. He would switch and it was, also, it was also good for the audience because it was kind of a reset. Got them all excited again. But, but from a business standpoint, the WWF would say, oh, this is, 
you know, the raw zone and this is the war zone or whatever. Um, or this is raw is war and this is the war zone. So they had, they could say, oh, we've got X number of shows in the top 10 and, and they would even, you know, throw a little graphic up that made you think the show was over, but of course they didn't go to commercial or anything. They kept you tuned in. Uh, so that crossover, they could count that second hour. They could count as a, uh, a new show when they were talking to bragging about how many shows they had in the top 10. And I think you guys here, it took that to another level in that you would even switch announcers. So hour one was Tony Schiavone and Larry Zabisco. And I think hour two here is going to be Eric Bischoff. Right. And that was n- not so much. There wasn't a, a programming strategy so that we could make each show uh, feel different for the purposes of Nielsen. It was, you know, the big concern about going into a two and eventually into a three hour show was just audience fatigue. Uh, no matter how good an announced team is, you know, two hours of the same people, you know, calling action and listening to the excitement and the drama and telling the stories, you know, to, Two people can get hard to listen to week after week after week unless they're really, really good. And I, I thought, you know, and again, you got to remember, a two-hour format was a new concept at this time. Uh, up until this point, everything had been one-hour shows. And it just felt to me like it would be easier to avoid audience fatigue if we just refreshed the show at the top of the hour in every way possible. So we got the Giant here taking on Scott Norton. Uh, the giant here is of course your world champion. I guess we should mention that it's been announced here that, uh, because of the backstage attack, we're going to have a substitution. Now Joe Gomez and the renegade will no longer be taking on flair and Arn Anderson. Now it's going to be sting and Lex Luger. Talk about an upgrade. <laughs> Joe Gomez. Joe is a great guy. What a, what a colorful character he is. Character is the right word. Now, let's talk about two other characters. Uh, Meltzer would report there was heat with uh, Pierre Ouellette and Jacques Rougeau, who were scheduled to start in July. Apparently, the Quebecers are upset because they believe WCW hasn't been giving them the support and agreeing to do a large stadium show in Montreal. And WCW doesn't want to take the risk of running in a 60,000-seat building in a market they have no history in. Rougeau has been wanting to do a show at the stadium ever since he sold out the forum for his retirement show in 94 and the WWF nixing doing a show at the stadium was the prime reason for his split with the WWF. What do you remember about them wanting to run a stadium show? Yeah. You know what? I remember that they were both kind of a pain in the ass, you know, they had a much higher opinion of themselves and I think were what was probably justified. And that's not unusual. They were, they were living off past accolades. They were very, very popular, you know, in Quebec. There's no doubt about that. Not taking that away from them, but it just wasn't that important of a piece of business for WCW again at the time. And this is, you know, a little weedy, but anytime we would, you know, go into Canada, you know, you'd have issues getting talent across the border. You know, we, we, we hear a lot about, you know, border security today, as it relates to the Southern border here in the United States, the Canadian border was way tougher to get through than the American. I mean, Canadian immigration laws are so much more uh, stringent than American laws. For example, if you had a DUI in your in your history, uh, in your background over the past five years or seven years, one or the other, you couldn't get into Canada. 
I mean, and and they had all that stuff. So when you would go through border border patrol, you give them your passport. They had a database. So if you had a DUI in the United States, it would come up. If you had been arrested for any number of things that normally was not that big of a deal here in the United States, it would prevent you from getting into Canada. And you can only imagine with you know fifty or sixty wrestlers on your roster for for a television show, uh, an entire production staff that you'd have to bring over the border. There were a number of people that couldn't even get across the border, and it was really expensive doing uh, television in Canada, probably 40 or 50 percent more expensive than it would be to produce it here in the United States. So as important as Quebec and and, and a lot of markets, Toronto, Montreal, were very important markets for us. But when you put a, a, a pencil to paper and did a budget for it, it was brutal. What's Lex got to say here? Let's, let's listen in. Does feel pain. One for you, one for me. The gloves are off. The rule book is out the window at the Great American Bash. Giant, you do feel pain, don't you? And I got a lot more surprises for you for the total package. I'll see you there. So we're getting hyped for the Great American Bash and, um, Something we're not exactly hyped for. Jeff Jarrett gave his notice to the WBF. Uh, this is reported by Wade Keller. And he received a conditional release. He can't work for WCW until the end of October when his contract expires. And McMahon actually acknowledges Jarrett's departure on the WBF 900 line. Uh, of course, Jarrett wasn't happy with his push upon his return to the WBF late last year. Talk to us a little bit about how Jeff Jarrett came to be uh here's jeeves again uh, he's doing triple duty you guys got your money's worth out of jeeves no kidding right that, that's uh what do they call that uh economies of scale yeah there you go <laughs> talk to me about jeff jarrett uh bruce pritchard's told the story where he was not happy with the creative uh, at an in your house in nashville and uh, rather than doing the uh the angle where it was going to be revealed that it was actually road dog uh, oh, look, it's a young Billy Kidman in there as an enhancement talent. He, look, he looks like he's 12. He looks like the fucking karate kid. He looks like Ralph Macchio. <laughs> he does. Um, does Jeff Jarrett reach out to you guys? Does Jerry Jarrett redo it instead? I mean, does it come to you? Does it go to Sullivan or somebody else or chat me up about Jeff Jarrett? No, I think it went to Sullivan or, or Terry Taylor. One of the two. Um, I, I didn't deal directly with Jeff. I didn't negotiate his deal. Uh, somebody else would have done that. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, I can't remember honestly if it came through Terry Taylor, if it came through Kevin Sullivan, but it, it didn't originate with me. That's that, that I do now. Wasn't Billy Kidman trained by the wild Samoans? I, I don't know. I'm not sure I ever knew who he was trained by, but he looks great here. And this is early, early Billy Kidman. Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, he looks like he weighs about 145 pounds here, but he's bouncing all over the place. He's, and he's in there. He's in there with a master too. I love Steven Regal's work. I really do. You know what's weird about Steve Regal is you go back and you see footage, and Steve Regal's one of those guys. And and we've joked about this on other podcasts before. Like JJ Dillon and Arn Anderson have both looked forty forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think Steve Regal is one of those guys too. Like Steve Regal today is fifty-one, but Steve Regal here could have passed for fifty-one. And goodness, this was twenty-three years ago. And I, you know, I saw Steve Regal uh, over WrestleMania weekend, and I think he looks better today than he did back then. He's in better shape, or at least when I saw him, he was. Uh, 
I think he looks better. But what a great wrestler. I mean, his facial expressions, you know, one could argue it's a little over the top, but that's what creates emotion. You always got a great reaction. Yeah, and you got to see a 28-year-old Steve Regal. And coming up, we're seeing a a promo or preview here of the Nasty Boys attacking uh, the public enemy. The Nasty Boys feel like they're from another era. Uh, But I got to tell you, they were always a guilty pleasure for me. I enjoyed some of their... I don't, not their TV matches, but when they had a pay-per-view match and it was going to be a brawl, I mean, those guys were going to bring it. You know, what's so funny. And, and there's, I mean, even today, as we speak, they are probably in some city at some wrestling convention and they, they are exactly the same. In fact, they wear the same gear. I'm sure it's exactly the same gear. They're the same characters and they have been since the AWA days back in 1985, 86, is where they really developed this character and it hasn't changed to this day. They're still doing it. And here comes uh, Ted Petty one half of, oh, there he is. We'd already missed Johnny grunge. Who would have thought Johnny grunge was the faster of the two. Uh, this is, you knock, uh, you, you knock these guys, but I, I kind of liked them. Listen, I mean, they, 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 were, they were over in W uh, in ECW for sure. And I think it's one of Paul Heyman's better tricks because I mean, he positioned them as main event guys and, and. The ECW crowd was with it, man. They were in, but I don't think they ever replicated that success anywhere else. Certainly they got closer in WCW than they did in the WWF. I don't think, I mean, I think that was just doomed from the start. Well, the talent pool, and this is not a knock on ECW, but it was a much smaller, um, lower budget. You know, the, the talent pool wasn't the same in ECW and I don't want this to come off as a shot but it's a lot easier to be a bigger fish in a very small pond in an ECW or in a small independent promotion than it is when you're playing on the same roster with some of the talent that we had at this time. I mean, there was some, you have to admit, there was some great talent on the WCW roster. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And one of those pieces of talent that people could have seen, but they didn't see uh, was Bret Hart. And he did an interview with the Saskatoon star Phoenix around this time. And he said of WCW, I've been offered pretty good money to jump. They double what I'm making now, but I don't want to sell out my name or my performance on a second rate show. That was a zinger. Yeah. You know, I I want to get you fired up. Are you ready to get fired up? Sure. Dave Meltzer would write. I think they're going to keep the identity of the third member of the Nash and hall team a secret until the July 7th show. There are things that lead me to believe it may not be Lex Luger after all, which is a mistake. Rumors are flying. It'll be Jeff Jarrett. Since Vince McMahon on the <laughs> WWF hotline brought up Jarrett's name with diesel and Ramon as expecting him to join WCW. Jarrett gave notice to Titan and is working at his notice in USWA and he is WCW bound. However, his WWF contract doesn't expire until the fall. So it probably won't be him. The WCW team will be Sting and Savage and either Flair or Luger. So everybody's trying to guess who it's going to be. Uh, but as of yet, no one has revealed, uh, what it's actually going to be. And I mean, this has got to be, you know, I know we're talking about Kevin Nash right now because of this show we're covering, but turning Hulk Hogan heel, it's got to be the number one thing you did in your career, right? In wrestling. Um, creatively, I, think, I don't mean yeah. like creating nitro or business. I just mean like on camera, 
I mean, it's got to be it, right? Uh, yeah. I, I don't think there's any questioning that. You know, I, and I, you know, I tend to think the cruiserweights and a lot of the international flavor that I kind of brought to the mainstream probably should be right up there too. But I think as far as what people remember, right, and you know, you know, the big moments that they remember, that was certainly it. But going back to Dave Meltzer's reporting in your um, weak ass attempt to fire me up, oh. notice. You know, he was speculating. No, it was kind of weak. That's not something that was going to fire me up. You know, Dave speculating that Lex Luger was going to be the third man. Where the fuck did that come from? I mean, that was never a thought. At this point in time, again, as we talked about at the head of the show, it was going to be Sting. Because, you know, Hogan was off on a mountaintop doing a movie called Santa with Muscles, I think, or one of those movies. Um, He... He only owed us four pay-per-views a year, and I think we had already done two or three at this point. So I didn't expect Hulk to come back. He wasn't a factor in my mind, storyline-wise. I didn't think we'd be using him again until probably the fall. Uh, maybe Bash at the Beach, but there was no immediate plans at this point for Hulk. So at this point, in my mind, all of my conversations about the third man, it was going to be Sting. Hulk didn't Hulk didn't call me until after this episode aired on June 10th. This is right after this episode aired. Well, he, the episode aired, I think Jimmy Hart sent him a VHS uh, oh overnight. Oh, my God. Look at what. Don't you talk over Blood Runs Cold. No, 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 no. We're going to talk over <laughs> No, but it's actually pretty cool. Let's talk about this. From a production value point of view, tell me this isn't badass. This lives up to today's standard. Just production value. <laughs> How dare you fucking laugh at me? Now you want to get me fired up? What was wrong with that? Let's go back. No, let's not go back and look at it. Let's screw things up on this podcast. But from a production value point of view, that tease was as good as anything you'll see on television today for a video game or any kind of a new sci-fi show. Come on. There was nothing wrong with that. Let me, let, let me just pause before we get into this. Is Is... Is Ray Lloyd not one of the nicest guys ever? He's the best. I mean, I'm about to shit all over Glacier, and I want to be clear. I'm not shitting on Ray Lloyd. He's one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. I mean, really, a salt-of-the-earth dude. And I know that that sounds silly, but if you meet him, you'll know exactly what I mean. But my gosh, what a tale of two WCWs it is here, where we're about to have Kevin Nash come in and do an invasion angle, and that's going to lead to the NWO. And then we've got Glacier. <laughs> but again, it's it's the buffet mentality. You know, not everybody is going to go for that type of character or that type of presentation, but some people are. Just like this match. I fucking hate this. I mean, this, to me, as a fan, would bore me to tears. But a lot of people like this kind well, of Hang match. on now. You were just putting this over. Like you were putting over, you're, you're kind of hard on these guys about the public enemy. And now you like it. No, I liked them. I thought given the right opportunity, they worked pretty well, but this is another just hardcore, no psychology, big bump. Ooh, ah, that was awesome. Kind of a match. And those matches never really appealed to me. I like stories. I like a three act structure. I like a beginning and a middle and an end. And I like two characters that I really give a shit about one way or the other. These guys, you know, when I look at the nasty, but this is me personally, as a fan, I'm looking at, you know, the four guys in the ring and I'm trying to decide which ones I want to like. If I have to decide which ones I want to like, you've already lost me. 
You know what I mean? This is just a this is a big bump, power guy, crazy hardcore style match, and they just eh. for me they don't work. Other people love them. He was and that's just, that's the same thing. We're going back to Glacier now, and you 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 busted me out on Glacier and the whole creative concept behind that. There was a younger audience that we were really trying to appeal to that liked that kind of a presentation. Well, specifically, and, and, and the, for younger fans or maybe way older fans, they may have missed this, but the hottest arcade game in decades, because arcades had sort of been, you know, a really, really big deal once upon a time. But then when home gaming systems like Nintendo and Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis and all these different, you know, home systems, uh, these game consoles become sort of commonplace arcades started to uh, sort of die down but one of the games and there was a handful of games that really gave the arcade business new life the biggest of which was probably mortal Kombat. and mortal Kombat was one of the first games that had a lot of blood so you would it's a fighting game with two guys and uh one guy could rip the throat out of another guy rip his heart out and there's blood everywhere and that was really new. And so it became controversial. So, you know, your, your 10 o'clock news, your six o'clock news, or uh, there's lots of people debating, you know, should this exist and, and should they put an age requirement on it? But it was making major bank and the hype led to, you know, all these other opportunities where now this arcade game became a movie. And that seems sort of silly when you think about it in reverse, but that's just where pop culture was at the time. So I totally get the idea behind Let's make it a thing, but it does seem rude out of place. Yeah. And fan, but at the same time, you know, we've given a pass to the WWF for that forever, you know? So here's this realistic stone cold, Steve Austin character. And he's just a badass beer drinking redneck who wants to kick your ass and flip you off and, you know, chug a bunch of beer. And then there's also this dead man who can summon lightning and he's dead, but he's not really dead, but he does want to sacrifice your daughter and. So like there's some of that silliness on the other channel as well, but glacier may be a mess and and glacier was patterned, uh, loosely, I guess, after a mortal Kombat character named sub zero. And if you go throw that in your Google machine, you'll sort of see what I'm talking about. Why was Ray Lloyd the right guy for that? Actually. And, and like you, I, I, I love Ray Lloyd. He's a genuinely great guy. And I hope he doesn't hear this because I don't want him to take it the wrong way. But he wasn't the right guy. Right. The, the problem with Ray was that he was so big and he was a great martial artist. I mean, a really good martial artist. But he was a big guy. And when big guys try to throw spinning kicks, you know, kicks have to be fast. They have to, you know, Sonny Ono could throw great kicks, working kicks, right? He could, he could throw a kick that would look like it would crack your head open that would barely touch you. Smaller guys have the ability to do that. The bigger you are, the more steam you have to throw behind those kicks. And the, the more steam you throw behind them, the slower they look, especially when you're 240, 250 pounds. They just don't have the the visual kind of crispness that most people associate with the martial arts they see on television and the movies and things like that. doesn't mean he wasn't legit. He was. He was very legit. Ernest Miller had much the same problem. You know, Ernest Miller, there's not a better martial artist probably even today associated with, with uh, sports entertainment. Um, 
than than technically speaking than Ernest Miller. But even Ernest, as good as he was, when he was trying to throw working kicks, he'd have to control them. He'd kick your brains out. And when you start trying to control a kick when you're that big, it slows everything down and it takes away from the pres- the, the martial arts kind of presentation. And I actually think if we would have done Mortal Kombat with a character that was a Billy Kidman size or you know, somebody that was a really great martial artist like Ray was and probably still is, but somebody that was a little smaller so that the presentation just looked more like – you know, the average viewer's expectations of what a Mortal Kombat type character would have looked like, it may have done better. I say may, I don't know. But that was a part of it. Even now when I go back and I watch, um, you know, some of Ray's matches as the Glacier character, he tried so hard, but his martial arts just didn't come off, I think, as effectively as it needed to. Yeah, I think that was the point I was getting to, is I feel like Ray Lloyd was was miscast as glacier and maybe if glacier had come about in you know 94 95 as opposed to 96 maybe that would have made all the difference in the world did you prefer coach buzz stern instead coach buzz stern yep help me out help me out that's uh what you repackaged glacier as in 1999 did i do that yep right before you left it was August really? of uh, 99. Maybe that's why I got sent home. Harvey Schiller said, Buzz Stern? What in the name of fuck? I'm sending him home. He's clearly lost his mind. He needs to go fishing, take a long nap, maybe come back next June. This is horrible. I can hear it now. Uh, is it just me? Or... Uh, it feels like coach Buzz Stern, um, somebody saw Beavis and Butthead and saw the character coach buzz cut on that show and said, man, he kind of looks like Ray Lloyd. So, so who would that have been? Now, I'm asking you now Kev. keep in mind, I, I, I was, I was crispy as, as a tortilla chip at this point. Um, and I probably, right before I left, I probably wasn't paying that close attention to creative, um, so who would that have been? I'm going to freestyle. That, it was Kevin Sullivan. I don't know, man. That's kind of, you know, Kevin Sullivan wasn't really that current when it came to pop culture. He kind of lived in the seventies and eighties. So if that was something that was hot in the moment, Kevin Nash, you know, I'm thinking maybe cause Kevin was pretty current. You I'm know, just he, thinking who's, who's sitting home smoking weed, watching cartoons. And those are the first two names that came to mind. Yeah, maybe. I mean, who knows? They may have been blazing away watching Saturday morning cartoons and chatting each other up on the phone, coming up with ideas. Well, maybe. Beavis and Butthead was not a Saturday morning cartoon. I mean, it was oh. it was a very adult themed cartoon. Hmm. Huh. Another another really controversial, you know, cartoon. You know, in this era, probably ninety six, ninety five, ninety six. It was what people were talking about. All right, here we go. Uh, we're getting our main event now. Uh, thank goodness. Um, Lex Luger and Sting are here to fill in as our tag champs. No more Joe no, Gomez notice, and Renegade. And notice Sting has already, uh, lost the surfer blonde hair. You know what I mean? Yep. This is obviously be- before scary nitro Sting and, 
and all of that, but he is already looking to kind of change direction here. And I think that's one of the reasons why when I came to him to talk about being the third man, he was pretty open to it because, you know, much like, you know, we talked about Hulk Hogan when he first got to WCW in 94, 95, and by this time, even in 96 in particular, the red and yellow baby face, 80s, early 90s Hulk Hogan just wasn't resonating, you know, the way he thought it should, the way we needed it to. And and that's why him turning heel was something that I approached him with eight months prior, probably prior to this time. Um, but Sting was feeling the same thing, that surfer you know, WCW, you know, early 90s WCW Sting, as powerful as that character was and as successful it was, it really wasn't working quite the same way by this point for him either. And I think that, like I said, that's one of the reasons why I, he was interested and willing and I think to a degree excited to be that third man if that's the way things would have played out. Rick Flair here rocking the old school pink robe. I think that's the one that, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the one 2k cut up, uh, and putting their Ric Flair edition of their video game a couple years oh, ago. Oh, wow. Going to be teaming here with sting, uh, or with uh, Arn Anderson rather to take on sting and Lex Luger. To me, these are four guys. When you think about WCW, I mean, these are the names that you associate, right? I mean, these guys are stalwarts with the company. Absolutely. I mean, this is. You know, other than Dusty Rhodes, uh, if, if we would have put him in there as a special referee or something, this was really the the brand value that had been WCW really since Ted Turner purchased the company uh, in 1989, 88 or 89, whatever it was. Well, we were talking a few minutes ago. They showed a, a package of Hulk Hogan. Of course, Hulk is not here, but they're trying to just keep him in front of everybody as a reminder. Hey, by the way, we've still got Hulk Hogan. So we saw a bit of a, a highlight package for him. And one of the packages or, or one of the clips was, uh, an extended period of him just beating the shit out of Vader in the corner and Hulk never pinned Vader, but you got plenty of footage of him beating him up here. And they're using that of course, because Vader has now jumped ship and he's on the other side of the fence. That's old school wrestling. You know, I mean, I think Jerry Lawler was probably most famous for this whenever you know, he was in the Memphis territory and, and of course that's his home territory. If someone was getting really hot on one of the other shows, uh, whether it's WBF or WCW or whatever, he would be sure to, in that next episode, let's show clips of Jerry Lawler beating that guy up. Uh, that's sort of old school wrestling one-on-one, is it not? It is. I was never really comfortable with it and I've done it, you know, I'm not saying I didn't do it, but it, it it always felt, uh, I don't know, it just felt cheap to me. And I'm pretty sure that the audience gets it. You know, it's one of the reasons why I told Brett, you know, when he was to Bret Hart to come over to WCW, that it that the title and him doing a job didn't matter to me. Because the audience knows. It's not like they're not aware. It, it, they're certainly aware. And they understand. And I think too much emphasis was put on that. Sometimes I think a company would have actually gotten over more if they would have sent talent out the right way instead of trying to diminish them, uh, myself included. I think if there were, where there were times that we did it, you just pointed one out. I think we probably would have done ourselves a better service by either just not acknowledging it at all or acknowledging it in a positive way for the contributions that a talent made. And now, you know, take that last parting shot. Cause that makes you look like a heel, no matter what. 
let's talk a little bit about, um, the ratings at the time. I feel like we should mention everybody that, cause I do think the narrative becomes, oh, well, Scott Hall showed up and WCW never lost another ratings war. That's not exactly true. Even on this night, Raw's going to draw a 2.7 and Nitro's going to do a 2.6. Something that we haven't spent a ton of time talking about on this show though, is that Nitro did a replay and some of our listeners may have forgotten that. But a few hours later, there would be a replay of Nitro for the West Coast. And here, this Nitro replay got a 1.4. Whose strategy was it to do a, a Nitro replay? And do you ever remember it being debated as to whether or not that actually hurt the show? Uh, it was Brad Siegel's strategy. Uh, it was something that we talked about. But when you have, you know, we joked about economies of scale with re- with respect to G's a few minutes ago. Co- economies of scale here really mattered. It took, I'm guessing, the budget. Now this is excluding we didn't allocate talent um, to the shows. So when I'm giving you these numbers, I'm talking about just specific, you know, hard hard production costs, including travel. These shows cost us about three hundred fifty to four hundred thousand dollars to tape or excuse me, to produce live. And for TNT, if they could get four hours out of programming out of that 400 grand, as opposed to two hours of programming, that was a good deal for them. For us, you know, the additional West coast replay was kind of a, it was a double-edged sword because you certainly want to pick up that additional audience. You know, it, it, it didn't really matter so much from a ratings point of view, because this was non-original programming on the second airing. So it really didn't matter all that much, and the rating wasn't that high. But where it really helped us was on the pay-per-view side of things, because we're hitting a, a West Coast audience that we might have otherwise you know, missed if we didn't have that replay. But we also felt like it kind of gave viewers an option for the original play. So in other words, if if I'm on the East Coast, and I know that I'm going to be able to watch you know, Monday Nitro after the Raw live event, and I'm not sure if Raw was still taped here or not or live, but it, you know, that second replay gave viewers a choice that I really wish we wouldn't have given them. But at the same time, like I said, we were picking up a West Coast audience that we might have otherwise missed. So it was a double-edged sword. Our main event here again is uh, Ric Flair and Arn Anderson taking on Sting and Lex Luger, who interestingly enough, are your tag champs in this era? Flair was coming to the ring with both uh, woman and Miss Elizabeth. We haven't spent a ton of time talking about them. It's unfortunate that they're no longer with, with us and neither is our referee. Uh, do you have any good Liz or, or woman stories we haven't talked about on the show before? Not really. You know, I, I never associated with, with a woman outside of, the little bit of business that I conducted with her backstage, I didn't really work with her very closely at all. So I, I had, I mean, we, you know, knew each other, we were cordial and things like that, but I, I didn't spend any time with her, um, away from the business. Uh, Elizabeth, on the other hand, actually became a very close friend of my wife's. Uh, and you know, cause Janie, Janie Engel was, she was my assistant, but she was almost a part of our family or was a part of our family. 
you know, my kids growing up called her Auntie Janie, and she would, you know, come, Lori and I would go away for a weekend or, you know, go out for an evening, and, you know, Janie would always come and stay with the kids, or the kids would go to stay at Janie's house. So she was very close to us, and her and Liz were close. So as a result, my wife and I, or excuse me, my wife and Janie and Liz became very, very close friends. And Liz would come out here to Wyoming. You know, Lori would have what she would call girls' weekends where her and, and Janie and Liz and couple other girls from the office and, you know, some other of their friends would all come out here and, you know, hang out and chase cowboys around Cody and party it up for the weekend. And, you know, Liz was out to the house a, a number of times. So I, I knew her more through my wife than actually any direct relationship I had with her. One of the uh, fun nitro innovations was the way you guys did the uh, ring skirts where you would put a light under the ring. So, uh, during the big intro or whatever, when all the lights are down, you'd, uh, shine that light through and there would be a piece of, uh, or, or some cutouts, I guess, uh, of that skirt that then would sort of shine through in, in this big, bright red color that would coincide with the pyro out of the posts, a really cool innovation that I think maybe gets overlooked because nobody's doing it now. And I don't think anybody's done it since. Yeah, I'm not sure whose idea that would have been. You know, I always kind of hand things off to Craig Leathers when it comes to that type of thing. But David Crockett was also pretty creative and and was looking for new ways to, you know, freshen the show up. So it was a guy by the name of Will Bird uh, who was very, very good and worked with David. So there was any number of people that could have come up with that idea. But at the end of the day, it would have always come down to Craig Leathers approving it. At the conclusion of this match, of course, is when we're going to see more from Kevin Nash. I guess we should smarten everybody up about that. Now, uh, Nash is going to be diesel in the WWF when he leaves WCW the first time. And of course, when he was through here before, I think he was the master blaster. Uh, and then he was Oz and then he became Vinny Vegas. Uh, he winds up becoming Shawn Michaels bodyguard and then a tag champion and then intercontinental champion and then the world champion and becomes a top guy with the world wrestling federation. And allegedly that happens because Vince McMahon fresh off of little trouble with, uh, the United States government about steroids is looking for mass, but mass that can be achieved clean. And Kevin Nash at the time, uh, was so now, you know, greener pastures and, uh, Eric Bischoff has offered a lot of cash to come down South. So Nash is going to finish up with the WWF on May 19th at Madison square garden. Most people remember that show as being the famous home of the curtain call incident. Um, when you first have a conversation with Nash about coming in that creative of the invasion we've talked about before, maybe it was in the back of your mind. Nobody could have ever predicted that it was going to be the NWO. Did you have another way or another idea to perhaps debut Kevin Nash than what we're about to see? No, no. And again, you know, Scott and Kevin became available almost simultaneously and I didn't see it coming. It wasn't like, you know, I had conversations with these guys six months before their, their contracts were up. I mean, it all happened very, very fast. And as I've said before, the idea you know, to create a more reality-based kind of storyline and premise was something that I've been searching for for about two years, you know, since I've been kind of watching what was going on in Japan and how believable and realistic their storylines were. 
So when Scott and Kevin, you know, became available, and I, I think, it, you know, this is June. Scott came in in May. I don't think Scott and I started talking until April, first part of May. So, I mean, that deal went down fast. Right. It, it came up fast and it went down fast. Um, so the idea of, of Scott and Kevin coming in, again, based off their real storyline, since Scott all, you know, the Diamond Stud had been in WCW, Vinny Vegas, Master Blaster, Oz et al., was in WCW before WWF. Those guys did go on to become big stars. So this, the simple premise of the NWO storyline was two guys that didn't get treated the way they should have gotten treated, who proved it by going off and becoming big stars, are now coming back to WCW to take revenge on all the people that didn't treat them right the first time. That was the p- simple premise that occurred to me when those two guys became available. Now, we built on that. And the presentation, you know, grew and grew and eventually became the NWO. But that was the simple premise. And to me, there was no better storyline. I didn't need a plan B. I didn't want a plan B. I felt like with those two guys, because of the timing and the backstory, that's that was the only story I wanted to think about. Yes, we should mention here that. Um... The, the phrase used in the wrestling business is certainly between Kevin Nash and Scott Hall was quote unquote sting money. Uh, had you heard that sting money was, uh, a, a descriptor before Kevin Nash and Scott Hall? No, no, I didn't hear that reference until sometime afterward, months afterward, but yeah, certainly not going into the conversation and believe me, you know, and again, you know how tight Scott and Kevin and I are at this point. And, you know, we've had to address some of these issues w- relating to money and contract terms and things like that in a couple. That's my son, Garrett, in this commercial. Whoa, oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's crazy. I had no idea that was him. I had no idea he did a commercial. I forgot all about it. That's awesome. Um, everybody's got different recollections of things. And I, I write a lot of the discrepancies in people's versions of stories off to just, <laughs> Oh God, that commercial is too funny. I write a lot of the discrepancies that I hear in stories to, you know, time. And we've all, we all saw things from different perspectives, right? But, but Scott and Kevin were not hard to negotiate with. It wasn't like these guys came in with big chips on their shoulders and, you know, not really sure they wanted to make the move to WCW or not. They were very, very easy to negotiate with. Let's put it that way. And the money wasn't that big of an issue for me. Again, these guys were making big. Now, they weren't making guaranteed money. And they might not have been making quite as much as I offered them initially. But I didn't offer them that much more than they had previously been making. I don't believe and some, some, somewhat more, maybe 25, 30% more, which is not unusual, but it's not like they were making 200 grand a year. And I offered them 750. They were probably in at five or 600 grand a year. And I offered them 750. The big difference was the dates. They had 300 dates a year in WWE. I capped them at 180. So it really, you know, you, and you set it up when you said they came in, you know, Eric Bischoff was offered big money. It wasn't that big of money compared to what they had been making. The difference is I had to guarantee it because I couldn't share pay-per-view revenue with them. We didn't have enough to share. I couldn't share licensing and merchandising with them because it was non-existent. I couldn't share house show revenue with them because it was non-existent for the most part at the time. 
So we were forced to give them a guarantee, but the guarantee wasn't that much more than they had previously made. Chris Harrington, uh, who's now with AEW, once upon a time, just dug into the business economics of professional wrestling. And uh, in 1996, he would report that Kevin Nash made $336,261 from WCW. In 97, he's going to hit that number you're talking about. 75687 so 756 grand in 1997 and of course 98 comes around and WCW's on another level my friend so 1.5 is Kevin Nash's take in 99 1.4 and in 2000 1.8 so a ton of cash rolling around uh, well beyond traditional sting money yeah but now again you put it in context you know, at the time, I'm guessing by 1998, 1999, whatever your time reference was, WW's probably gross revenues were in excess of 350 or 400 million. You know that. You know, you you look at WC, you look at WWF and their top line. I can't compare them today because they're much bigger than we were back in '96 and '97, '98. But you look at some of their their compensation packages although they were laid out differently look at their compensation when they're doing 400 and 500 million dollars with the revenue there's a lot of guys making in excess of 1.5 or 2 million dollars much more than much more than we're making that much money in wcw at this point the giant is freaking on another level here they're nailing him with these wooden chairs (laughs) and these these chairs are not gimmicked. As soon as I saw a wooden chair, I thought, well, this is going to splinter into a million pieces. And then when I saw the guy swinging, I'm like, wait a minute, uh, that's a real chair. And they really hit the shit out of him there. So yeah, uh, the giant's going to interfere here and they're going to be doing a promo here. I guess we'll let everybody hear as we're getting set for the great American bash. Don't forget. We're not just debuting Kevin Nash. We're trying to sell some pay-per-views. Morgan, you're a dead man. Was it, I mean, Paul is in amazing shape here. No, he's in great shape here. And of course he's on a collision course with, um, Lex Luger. who was just cutting a promo at the desk earlier saying, oh, you do feel pain. And of course his buds, Scott Steiner and sting are there to support him. And, um, yeah, this is a, an interesting way to end the show because normally you want to end the show with or nitro would, would, would get into a rhythm where they end the show with, um, you know, a lot of it, a lot of in ring action. All right. Let, you know what? Let's just play the audio here for a minute and let everybody hear what's about to happen. As we see Bobby Heenan cutting a promo at the desk seated right next to you hands around my body at the great American bash. You, you, and this whole world is wrong. I don't have any beef with you. I didn't take money from Flair that was filtered through your ex-wife to give to me. You're badly mistaken. I wear glasses. I don't want to be touched or bothered. We missed the beginning, but Bobby Heenan is is concerned that Randy Savage is going to try to beat him up. And now he sees what's coming and he runs away. Here we go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't want any trouble with you. I don't want any trouble with you here now. But I have to point out, you came out here last week. Where is it? The big surprise. 
I mean, I heard a lot of talk, but where's the walk? What? I'm here. Where is he? You've been sitting out here for six months running your mouth. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective, play. We ain't here to play. Now he said last week that he was gonna bring somebody out here. I'm here. You still don't have your three people. And you know why? Because nobody wants to face us. This show's about as interesting as Marge Schott reading excerpts from Mein Kampf. No trouble here tonight. Speak your piece and Yeah, no trouble because you know I'll kick your teeth down your throat. Where's your three guys? You what, you couldn't get a paleontologist to get a couple of these fossils cleared? You ain't got enough guys off a dialysis machine to get a team? Yeah, where's Hogan? Where's Hogan? Out doing another episode of Blunder in Paradise? Where's the macho man, huh? Doing some Slim Jim commercial? Hey, we're here. You want to say something? Look, I don't have the authority right here, right now. You want to fight? Fight is it with me. You want three guys? Tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, I'm going to be in Atlanta. I'll be in the offices of WCW. I'll try and get you your fight. And you know what? Live this Sunday in Baltimore, Great American Bash. You guys want to show up? You want to fight? You show up, I'll see if I can get you your fight. I don't know about you, but hey, they love us in Baltimore. Hey, hey Big Man, I say me and you, we'd be at the Bash. Maybe these punks want to fight. Yeah. I'll be there. Bring what you got. The measuring stick just changed around here, buddy. You're looking at it. What a cool way to end the show. What a great way to end the show. And man, the stage is set, but you know, for better or worse, for years and years, people have made fun of Kevin Nash's promo there. Where he says, look at the adjective. Talk to me a little bit about, um, that promo and who put it together or was it just all off the cuff? Uh, we talked about it as we typically did, uh, at that point, you know, Kevin was a pretty good pretty good on the mic. So was Scott. So was I. So we, for the most part, we kind of bullet pointed it. We knew, we knew how we wanted it to end. Right. We knew what the premise of the interview was. We knew what the story was for the most part. It was improv. Once we went over what the goal was and what we were trying to accomplish, then, then it was pretty much improv. This conversation that you have with Nash here is really one of the first times that it's acknowledged to the viewer at home 
uh, that you're more than just a regular announcer. I mean, it's not explicit, but it is sort of implied there. Was anybody hesitant about that piece? No, not at all. I mean, this is where we really, really started doing things differently. I mean, Nitro, the format was different than what people had been used to seeing in WWF and previously in WCW. We just were beginning to really start changing the presentation up quite a bit. So I think people were, for the most part, excited. You know, we were having quite a bit of success, not ultimately not the success we were going to have, you know, in the months and years to come following this episode. But even at this point, we were feeling very confident in the direction we were going. We were feeling very confident in trying new things and just doing things differently from shooting a lot of scenes backstage, which you never really saw before Nitro. That was not typically something you would see in the WWF. Everything kind of happened out on the arena floor. We were taking the stories and telling them in the locker rooms, in the backstage areas, in the parking lots, you know, off premises, so to speak. Um, those were all things that had never been done before, giving away finishes. So there, there were so many things that we were doing differently than had ever been done before. People were n- not necessarily afraid of anything. They were feeling very confident. And, you know, my attitude was, look, we'll try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, as long as nobody dies, we'll try something else next week. That was the overall feeling, you know, in 96 and 97. And it's the way we approach things. And by the way, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too corny here, but that was Ted Turner's philosophy is try things, you know, do something different. You know, go ahead and experiment. If it means you fail, that's okay. Just don't fail at the same thing twice. You know, move on to something else. And that was the spirit, I think, that we attacked Nitro with at this point. Well, which, gonna... is why, which is why people didn't really feel uncomfortable with doing something that was unusual. Well, we did something unusual today with the watch long. We haven't done a lot of these, but I had fun doing it, and we hope you did too. I think this was uh, one of our low-key better episodes. I really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to next week when we get together and we talk about the Great American Bash 1999 that went down on June 13th from Baltimore, Maryland. For whatever reason, you guys love Baltimore. Uh, your main event there is going to be Kevin Nash and Randy Savage. Underneath, we've got uh, D- Diamond Dallas Page and Chris Canyon taking on Chris Benoit and Perry Saturn. We've got Rick Steiner in singles competition against Sting in a false count anywhere match. We've got Ric Flair taking on Roddy Piper. Ernest Miller is in there with Horace Hogan. The No Limit Soldiers are going to take on the West Texas Rednecks. Buff Bagwell will be in there with uh, Disco Inferno. Van Hammer is working with Mikey Whipwreck. That's right, Van Hammer. And Hack, the former Sandman, will be taking on Brian Nobbs in a hardcore match. That's what we're doing next week here on 83 Weeks. And We appreciate your support here. Hope you're digging what we're doing. We'd love to get your feedback. So if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at 83weeks. He is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.